prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. This is going to be our Monday long-form interview, and I have a special uh, first-time double guest interview. Uh, These two I met when I was down in Phoenix at the Project Veritas event, uh, the American... America Fest, I guess it's called. Uh, We got to spend some time together and their story is very compelling. I think you're going to find it highly interesting. So I'm going to give a quick uh, intro and then we'll bring them on the show here. So I've got Tara Rodas. She's a 20-year civil servant with the Federal Service, which is a lot further than I made it. And it's probably as far as uh, Fed, Phil and I combined. Um, She's been working in training and professional development for a number of years and she has a master's degree and uh, education, another one in biblical theology, which I'm sure played into some of the ways that she sees the world and the way she reacts she does. And she also speaks Spanish, which is why she volunteered for the story that you're going to hear here in just a second. I've got Aaron Stevenson as well, who was a Marine Corps veteran. We bring a lot of Marines on. I love Marines. They're my favorite people. Eight years in the United States Marine Corps, 10 years with the uh, Department of Homeland Security. We've talked about how Homeland Security is such a big animal. He's going to tell you a little bit about how he worked over there, worked with the uh, Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, and USCIS. He recently just was fired from his forced telework position, which I totally represent as a indefinitely suspended guy. He got a little different term. So every agency does it differently when they kick you out the door. But uh, we've got a lot of common history there. So I'm going to start with uh, Tara, if you want to jump on here. Thanks so much for joining us. Aaron, thank you as well. Let's uh let's get into it. Like, tell me where you grew up and how you got to be sitting here in this situation as a federal whistleblower. Okay, well, I actually grew up in Georgia, so I was born at Fort Benning. My dad was Army, uh, and then moved to Virginia. So lived here almost all my life. Went to James Madison University, and uh, actually there is where I had the opportunity to intern for a congressman and a senator, and sort of thought, wow, I could make a difference in in the world. And so I joined federal service later, a little bit later after that. And I volunteered, I'm sitting here only because I volunteered in 2021, when the Biden administration asked for help with the humanitarian crisis on the border. And And that was one of help. Yeah, that was one of those emails that went out like government wide, where they were looking for anybody, like literally anybody, like put your hand up in the air and we will we'll pick you for this TDY to go help out with uh, all the uh, the influx of migrants, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I thought this was a family reunification program. And so I raised my hand and I said, you know, I would love to go help the kids. And uh, so that's how I am sitting here today. I love it. Now. I'm going to go back one step because I think it's interesting. People who don't know anything about Virginia don't realize you said James Madison University, correct? Mm-hmm. All of the Virginia schools are not called University of Virginia, fill in the blank. They're all named after founding fathers, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So so the circuit is very different. Like a lot of people would be like, oh, I went to University of Texas at Austin. I went to University of Texas in Dallas. I went to University of Texas in El Paso, whatever it may be. And Virginia has decided for whatever, like I used to live next to George Mason and I was like, I don't know what that means. They're all part of the Virginia school system. (laughs) And it's the only state that I've ever seen that does that. Yes. My sister graduated from George Mason. Yeah. I had investigations into professors there. No big deal. Um, 
Oh, interesting. There, there's shady people at every school right now. Uh, that's the Chinese for you, though. All right. So we're going to get into our uh, the story and how you guys worked together or how your stories relate to each other. Uh, Aaron, kind of give me the backstory. I know you were in the Marine Corps. Tell us what you did and maybe where you grew up and why you joined the Marines right out of high school. Like, why were you such a genius? Uh, so I, I'm from Coot, Illinois. It's a small town, south suburbs of Chicago. And I live there and also in Atlanta, the Wolf Will County, uh, just, you know, quiet suburb site. Mm-hmm. And I joined the Marine Corps because um, I knew I wanted to be in the service always. I was like, you know, I'll go to the Army, I'll go to the Army. And then, you know, one day I talked to somebody and he was like, you're thinking about the Marine Corps. And I, I had no idea. I was like, no, I mean, what is that? So next day I called the recruiter. Day after that I went down there. And we're kind of going through the cards. Like, you know, why do you want to join? Bride of service, adventure. And I'm just kind of like, hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the gunny walks in and he just starts yelling at me. He's like, you going to be a Marine or what? And I was like, yeah. My at, at that clicked in me and I have no idea what it was, but it just, it, it was something. So I signed up. Um, I went to boot camp in July of 2001. Whoa. And then uh, the years, I mean, next nine years, basically, it was just kind of, it's kind of all, all over the place. Um, I went to Okinawa. I went to Iraq three times. Um, I was an Intel guy and, you know, I, 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 I do it again, make the best friends in the world. A lot of good experience and uh that was that um but then i joined the federal service because i wanted to you know continue serving country so i tried to become um the fed takes a while uh, so i contracted for a bit and i did that with the uh, um, national ground intelligence center and the dia went to afghanistan three times um learned that mind that whole program of biometrics and forensics and then i finally got a job offer for dhs so i took it um went to dc area and i was doing that for about you know eight eight and a half years Okay. No, sorry, 10 years. Yeah, 10 years now. Now, for those who are listening to our audio podcast, you have some hair that is probably out of regs. Would your uh, recruiting gunny have lost his mind if you had walked into that recruiter's office with that ponytail? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was wearing a, I was wearing like a polo and khakis. Like I was nervous like a job interview. Right. And I still wasn't like enough for him, basically. You know. But that's what you want. Yeah, you want, you need to be yelled at. When I so I enlisted, I was twenty seven, and I went in there and I talked to a recruiter. And the first thing I said, he spoke to me in broken English because he was a little Filipino guy, super nice, nice man. But he, I asked him a question, and he said he looked at me like I had just, you know, given him the Rosetta Stone, and he had no idea what to do with it. And I said, I need to speak to someone who's smarter than you. And he was like, Yes. And then he went back and he grabbed a master sergeant, and this little guy came out, this little Irish power lifter whose last name was McCool. And he was like, what do you need? And I was like, you're my guy. So I ended up working with whoever the, the top recruiter was in that little silly office. But yeah, you need him. I was, I was old enough that I was like, look, this is a sale. You know, we're all selling something and uh, I'm not prepared for, for a dumb person to try to sell me on the, uh, on the military service. All right. So let's dig into your disclosures. Give me the broad overview, Tara. If you'll give me the broad overview of your allegation and then we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of what those things look like. Because I know you guys saw basically the same thing from very, very different angles, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. So again, when I answered the call, the humanitarian call, I believed that this was a family reunification program. Mm-hmm. I had no idea whatsoever that one child had ever been trafficked through HHS's unaccompanied children program. So we call it the UC program. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, when I volunteered, I thought it was going to be just talking to kids and helping them feel comfortable and safe after their long journey and maybe doing English and playing games. And I did that, you know, in the beginning. 
and I, whatever they needed, I would do. So if they needed a child to go to medical, I would escort them there. If they needed a child to go to their case manager, I would escort them there. And when the call came out that they needed help in case management, I, anytime I raised my hand, I said, sure, I'll help with that. I had escorted the kids over there before. And it was just probably, I would say about 20 days working in case management when we discovered the first instance of what I called a suspicious sponsor. And I learned after that case and then the next case where there were kids going to the same address from multiple sites around the country. Then I learned that sponsors sponsored multiple kids. And then I learned there's a thing called a category three sponsor, with which means the child doesn't even know or not related to this person, I thought, what in the world is going on here? But what really changed the tide was when I saw Aaron's disclosure on Project Veritas, that transnational criminal organizations were sponsoring these kids and that it was coordinated and they were high level actors, criminal actors. And I discovered that. And that was what ultimately got me kicked off the site. So I volunteered to help, was disclosing that you know, people were trafficking the children. But when I said, well, not only are people and bad actors trafficking these kids, but they're high level criminal actors involved in transnational criminal organizations, that was it. And it it, it took them less than three weeks to get me off the case, accuse me of wrongdoing, mm-hmm. threatened me with investigation. I was actually walked off the site by security and my badge was taken. One yeah. of the things you told me- It's not, when- it's not a fun experience. No, I'm sure. One of the things you told me when we first met was that the, none of the people that were volunteered and, and in the role that you were in were 1811 series, my, my old job code, what Phil used to do, the criminal no. investigators. Did you say that they were filtering out people that volunteered that were criminal investigators? So I was told by someone at HHS Office of Inspector General that they were not allowed to volunteer for the mission. So we're talking about people who have responsibility for moving children to to homes and distributing them all around the country with no law enforcement experience. Our background check team, I mean, these were just regular people. They were contractors. Some of these were young kids. It was their first job. They were not actually performing background checks at all. So yeah. this is uh, stunning. It, it's it's stunning. Yeah, the way the program is set up. There's there was no investigators there. No. Yeah, it sounds like they designed it to to have minimal oversight. So this is kind of an interesting, uh, just an analogy. I want you guys to put this in your heads. But um, what I just found out is that the January sixth investigations that are happening out of Washington field office have been done historically so far by people rotating in from the FBI out of the field. And you have, you know, various degrees of experience that are doing it. They're now moving 30 fresh agents that are all on probation with no previous experience because the government is looking to find yes people. And it sounds like you ran into one of those things. Um, I want to pivot over to uh, Aaron's story, because if that's what got you moving, Aaron, you were working in a very different space. You weren't dealing with the kids directly, but you were dealing with the intelligence and the research end of it. Kind of walk people through um, what your job was and then why it was your job to see what you saw. Well, so at USCIS, where I was working at, we were writing my team. We would do like more, we called it strategic analysis, looking at long-term trends, problems, whatever. So we kind of have like, 
you know, a bit of room to look at problems and say, like, what's going on here? Um, now, because of this, though, I was also um, when they constructed when the government, the whole government constructed the talk watch list or the Transnational Organized Crime Watch List. I helped represent USCIS at DNS to like see how it was being developed, how it would interact with our operations, like what we would do with the information. So from the very get go, I was on the like program and I was, you know, obviously familiar with it, very intimate, knew how it worked, everything else. And this is back in um, like probably late 2015, early 2016. This is when this thing was kicking off. So fast forward to 2021, and I'm still getting every single notification. So a notification is when anybody on the talk watch list like basically does something. Um, give, there's a give lot some, of ways to Yeah, I'm going to pause you, you just for one second. Give, give some examples of transnational organized crime organizations so people can get a, a concept of what when we say talk, um, what that means, and like what are these groups? Yep. So these are... Uh, the, the easiest ones to, to understand, at least for us, because we talk about it so much, is like MS-13, 18th yep. Street Gang, uh, Paisas Cartel, these organizations. There are obviously more. There are uh, a Balkan organized crime group. You have South American theft groups. You have other Eastern European you know, crime entities. So basically, um, organizations that are international that do crime across our border. That's mm -hmm. what makes it transnational, criminal, and it's organized. Okay. And so for um, people's historical and, context... Know, to be fair... Yeah, I'm going to give people kind of historical context. If you go back far enough, you deal with things like the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, things like that. And then more modern now, we're seeing the things that are closer to us, which is cartel and or uh, gangs from Latin America or Central America that are kind of bringing things in. So, all right. So carry on. I just want people to have a concept of these groups that we're talking about. We're not talking about unorganized or individual onesie twosies. These are like professional organizations that have serious infrastructure and capabilities and they are moving mm -hmm. across national borders as well. Yeah. So um, whenever like somebody was a, an alien on that watch list or a criminal on the watch list, they get triggered by a number of ways. If they were pulled over by a police officer, if they were, you know, entered through a port of entry, or if they were to sit with USDIS and do an immigration benefit, um, we would see those and they come in basically live feed. And one day I've been getting these things in 2016. So I've seen the pattern, I see how it develops. Um, I have a loud dog in case you hear that. And um, in 2021, it was I think it was February. I saw one that come in, and I didn't recognize what it didn't say like you know law enforcement encounter. It didn't say prison, prison arrest or prison release. It said six USC two seven nine USC sponsor. And I was like, what is that? So I, I copied pasted it, looked up Google, and it says this you know this program. I'm like, what does that mean? Is, is this guy a kid? What is the date of birth? No, this guy's like 23 or something like that. I was like, that makes no sense. So, okay, whatever. I saw about three, four weeks later, another one. And I was like, all right, this is weird. So I put it in this, in, you know, my, my entire search history of all notifications we've ever had. And those are the only two. So it was like a whole new thing. I was like, this is kind of strange then. And then before I knew it, there was a third one. And then it starts, I start seeing one about every three to four weeks, one's coming in. So I, of course, start looking into these guys. I'm like, all right, well, may, maybe these are criminals that are going to the government to maybe find their child. That doesn't make sense, but I'll look it up. They didn't have kids. Okay. Well, maybe there's extended family. Maybe there's some kind of record showing that. No. I was like, all right, well, this doesn't make sense at all. Then we saw a Romanian guy coming in. So I know it's not just like, you know, cartels and Southern stuff. It's like, no, no, this is an international thing. And this work is hard to, or this work is important to understand. This watch list was capped at 40,000. That's a very, very small number. Mm -hmm. About every month, the illegal entries are about, you know, almost a quarter million. Um, so no, sorry, that just no, it's about yeah, about a quarter million. It's is a much bigger volume of people coming across that are criminals that are just not watch listed. 
because of the way this thing's constructed. Mm-hmm. And I just started looking at it. I'm like, this is the bigger problem I think we realize. So I looked around and I, you know, talked to some analysts. I, you know, to friends in CIS. I talked to friends in CBP and ICE. You know, hey, are you guys writing on this? Are you guys collecting on this? Like, there, there's got to be something on this thing, right? And no one had anything. I went to DOJ and I knew a guy at FBI and I, you know, hit people up. I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? And no one had anything written on this thing. And then uh, the collection primer got released by DHS-INA. Um, that's Intelligence and Analysis. It's the component of the intelligence community from DHS. And the, the entire collection primer was on there on organized gang activity. And sex trafficking, sorry, trafficking as a whole was not even mentioned. And I was just like, okay, so like, so of course no one's writing on this. No one's looking at this thing. No one's collecting the information to be able to, you know, do some analysis, develop some whatever, and then like distribute products. To be fair, and is that, that, that would be me like, that that wouldn't surprise people if it's a new and emerging threat that there wouldn't be a big um you know database on it that there wouldn't be a lot of intelligence that had already been gathered correct I mean that's that's how we start things somebody's got to identify well, a pattern yes but if it's a new activity you definitely however the problem is it's mentioned in all these in every single encounter when it talks about these gangs yeah MS thirteen is involved in sex trafficking eighteen street gang they are involved in sex trafficking mm-hmm. so we know these groups do these things. But it's like, okay, now we're seeing it through a new mechanism. So why are they using this mechanism then? And no one had anything at all. Um, you know, tried talking about it at work, tried bringing things up. And it was just like, nah, this is not, this is not us, Aaron, sorry. And I was like, all right, fine. So then, you know, I reached out to Project Barrett's house, show what's going on. And then they were like, yeah, this looks pretty bad. Okay. And that was that. Now, when you... Were you? Do you guys get whistleblower training the way that uh, the, the FBI does, as far as like how to do it, what you what you're supposed to do, are you know the the approved routes and so on? And and if so, what does it look like on your end? Because I've I've gotten those trainings for years, but I don't know everyone does. Sure. Okay, so yeah, I mean we we have the standard whistleblower training. You know, make sure that you go through protected uh, pathways, stuff like that. Um, but when you're actually really in the middle of it. And you've never done that before and having no 1811 background experience, it was challenging. I'm just very fortunate that I had come from the IG community. Right. So I was reaching out to people who were helping me. You know, they they helped me out along the way and got me through, you know, to the right, to the right people to talk to. So yeah. It's funny because a lot of I think a lot of people who work in the federal government know that there is a thing. It's just a nebulous concept and there's no it's not like the mechanics of it are ever discussed. So there's a lot of people that are actually legally considered to be whistleblowers if they bring it up inside their chain of command like this is a problem that they are whistleblowers like that's that's part of the the appropriate chain as described by federal law. And yet none of that stuff is ever attributed to you unless they come after you and retaliate and fire you or do the other things they end up doing. So most people have no clue they are, in fact, whistleblowers. And Aaron, when we, we talked the other night, you would have qualified under all the things that you talked about bringing it up to your your management structure. Um, and the only thing that we keep finding out mm-hmm. is that government agencies tend to protect themselves and their own reputations because that's where their budgets are tied. They don't really care about problems. They care about not problems. They care about not my problem more than more than anything else, which I think you both experienced. Yeah. Right. And I'm not going to lie to you. I, I thought about going to the OIG and just like, I knew they existed. Like, okay, maybe I just throw, you know, spaghetti at the wall. They'll know what to do. And I also know that it's government. It's going to take a long time. They're, and then in the end, they're going to tell me what I told them, and nothing's going to happen. In the meantime, this is this is where it really kind of plays a part on you. Children are being sex trafficked. And I was just like, you know what? I, I just 
it, 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 this is crossing a line guys. And that was, that was enough for me. Yeah, there is something about the immediacy that uh, if you go into the government channels, it, you know, for, for example, the weaponization committee, which is being impaneled right now uh, under the current Congress, they've said that they're going to get a report on what the FBI has been doing wrong in 2025. Uh, meanwhile, my family has been without a job for like a year. And as you probably guys know, once you've been kicked out of there, you know, thanks for looking into it for two years. But we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands and maybe worse uh, children being exploited that's not an acceptable answer, which is why people like us end up going public with things when maybe that's not the approved channel, um, but humanity sort of dictates that we do it the right way. Uh, so Tara, you you heard about the Project Veritas release that Aaron was involved in. Did that, yes. did that make you aware of what you were seeing or did it confirm or, or how did that move you, spur you into action? So it made me aware. So... I think I would say I went through the stages of grief about 20 times, you know, while I was there. So first is seeing the suspicious sponsor activity, seeing these red flags, being like, why are multiple kids going to the same address? Why are there like a few square miles in Houston, Texas, where there's over 300 unaccompanied children? What What's up with that? Mm -hmm. How is it that we have people who are sponsoring multiple children. I mean, how, how is this happening? And so someone then sent me the Senate report all the way back from 2016. And I was just beyond horrified to know that there were trafficking rings in, in the United States that were trafficking these kids. And that it was not new news to the federal government. And it was not news to HHS. And so I, I, I was stunned. That's all I can say. Just absolutely horrified. And then as I read through the Senate report, realizing that all the deficiencies that the committee found then are worse now because all of their rules have been relaxed. So HHS put out field guidance stating that, well, um, we, we want to try to fast track things so you don't have to ask or do background checks on who may be living in the house. Um, you don't actually have to do home studies. There's all these rules that they relaxed. And I think people don't understand that hundreds of thousands of children have crossed the border and come into the care of the federal government. And the federal government with tax dollars, 10 billion, as a matter of fact, in the last two years, has blown those children all around the country. And these children, HHS says, are missing. And so this, this just doesn't make any sense. So I was just horrified. So when I saw the video that Aaron put up on Project Veritas, well, that James O'Keefe, right, put up on Project Veritas, um, I thought, if this is happening, then my whole worldview has just, you know, exploded. It, and it opened your eyes to what was actually happening there. Apart. Yeah, yeah. And so... It only took less than two weeks after seeing Aaron's video and I'd circulated around, you know, the site mm -hmm. that we found, yeah, we found the first case and it was confirmed without a doubt. She self-disclosed. She sent in her adjudication paperwork, 24 pages. She had served time in El Salvador for her role in the gang and was simultaneously sponsoring two kids, one from Fort Bliss and one from, one from our site. And, um, it, it was just stunning to me, stunning to me. And I, 
I still can't get over it, that people know about it, that they've known about it for years. And last week, you know, you probably saw that 100 migrant children, no less than 100, were found working in slaughterhouses throughout the United States, some middle schoolers. And people wonder how this is happening. You know, we keep seeing these busts of child trafficking, labor trafficking, and sex trafficking. And people are like, how is this happening? I'm like, well, your federal dollars at work, $10 billion in two years to bring these children in and distribute them around the country to a lot of serious bad actors. Now, when you when you d- uh, understood what was going on there, just and I'll come right to you. Um, but Tara, did, how was that received when you were sharing that video around? When you're showing what Aaron has disclosed from the intelligence side of things, these are the hard documents saying, "Look, we're we're now tracking the um, the not the child side of it, but the receiving side of the children." What what did people at DHS yeah. or, or at uh, at these facilities say? Rather, HHS. So remember, these are federal volunteers like me, right. no law enforcement background. People in the community there in Pomona, California, because I was at the Pomona Fairplex emergency intake site. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say we cried a lot of tears. Okay. So a lot of times I felt like a therapist to people because of the situations that they were seeing and finding out about what was happening with the kids. So it 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 was a very sad, uh, sobering moment to realize these these are children and they are in crisis situations and what you know what could we what could we do so we were passing everything forward we learned how to pass things through to office of trafficking and persons I'd like to shout out to some great people who from USCIS who helped us get you know trained up on hey how do you how do you identify this how do you write it up there's specific things you need to include you know to to ensure that it's trafficking and not just smuggling. Mm-hmm. So there has to be force, fraud, or coercion. And so we had to make sure that when we were doing the interviews, we were finding out those things to put in the reports so that these kids could hopefully go to long-term care and not to traffickers. Okay. Yeah. Aaron, you were going to say. So two things also. So those encounters I got that I shared with Veritas, which is the intelligence part, which helped, you know, kind of drive other things. Those notifications don't go any of them to HHS. And I checked in every single one of those, like in every single two lines, it was everyone's email was on there. I'm looking at every domain, not one of them is HHS. Uh, the other part was, because Tara referenced it, so I wanna always ask this question. Uh, those 100 kids that got, you know, thankfully, you know, rescued from the trapping operation. Kyle, do you know what happens to those kids? They get put back in the system, I imagine. Yep, go right back into it. Mm-hmm. And then HHS, once we bring them back into care, HHS then looks for a new sponsor. Yeah. And that and that sponsor may be the exact same thing they just got rescued from. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, the good thing is, though, is that, um, Tara, you did say that um, there was at least one kid you guys found that like, oh, yeah, this is trafficking. And they did get that OSIP letter. They did get pulled out of the sponsor, right? Yeah. And that's why. Was- yeah, there were several yeah. children who actually did get what's called a interim assistance letter, meaning that Office of Trafficking in Persons also suspected that this is this child has been a victim of trafficking. And then those children went to long-term care, which is a wonderful outcome for the children. And why is nobody going after the sponsor who was attempting to get them, right? 
So like we know right now, there are sponsors who the children we believe are being trafficked, but why isn't anyone going after any of the sponsors? See, HHS doesn't want anyone looking into the background of their sponsors. And this is, this is the problem. This is the problem. There's lack of transparency. And HHS has lost control of the program. That's the bottom line. They've lost control um, and they don't want to admit it. And that's if they would just come clean, share the data, then we could we could recover these kids. And they they know that. Yeah, they would have to do something that government agencies don't do, which is admit wrongdoing or a failure of a program and then say, how do we take steps to fix this? It's much easier to try and ignore it and act like it didn't happen. That seems like the standard government move. I think we've all experienced it in different departments. So it um, is there a law enforcement capability within HHS that would actually have responsibility or would that fall back on FBI, you know, uh, CBP, some entity in DHS, HSI, something like that. Where where would this fall if there was a law enforcement uh, action to be taken? And I don't know who knows, either of you. So, yeah. So I, I'll start and then I'll let Aaron follow up. So HHS, Office of Inspector General, I mean, they have great agents who would be all over this if they had access to the information. They wouldn't go after the kids per se. I mean, they wouldn't be going after the traffickers. Yes, they could easily be going after the traffickers. Okay. Yes, they could. And they do kick in doors and, and recover children. They do that as well. Okay. There are some amazing people in the Office of Inspector General for HHS. The problem is um, the agency does not want anyone looking at their sponsors. And I'm not quite sure how they get around this, uh, how they're able to have such lack of of oversight and transparency. So many of the sponsors are not U.S. citizens and they are not permanent residents. Most have no legal presence. So they are they claim you know they don't want anyone going after the sponsors. Hence, they just hide all the data. Whoa. Okay. So they're not LPRs. They're um, they're not green card holders. They have no legal status in this country, and yet we're more than happy to go send children to go be with them. And um, and then you're saying, and they're obviously not citizens either. So these people are illegally in this country taking children who have come across probably in some illegal situation. They were not coming across uh, legally. Otherwise, they would have a family or a, lo- a landing pad. And we are literally feeding this community with undocumented, who knows where the heck they're going, children. So, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ping something off you guys, because this is something I saw when we worked um, MS-13 type operations in, um, where were we at? In Maryland, for the most part, let's say. So you talked about a few square miles of where you were seeing all the trafficking happen. What we would see is they were enclaves of take your, take your pick, whether they were from El Salvador or Guatemala or whatever. They were enclaves of illegal immigrants in uh, Maryland or if they were in Washington, D.C. or whatever, these little kind of areas that they would all kind of take over. And a lot of those were no-go zones for most law enforcement, especially locally, without big resources because they could be incredibly violent. They had, you know, lookouts. They had kids that were working on their behalf. You know, they were doing things, running it like a compound. And the way that I always argued for people that are very leftist leaning or very progressive or liberal, whatever you want to call it, they would say we were trying to let people come into this country to have opportunity. But in reality, what we saw was that people would get um, over the border, they would come into these little enclaves, and then they were victims. Let's say it was only one in a hundred was a predator. 
uh, part of the you know criminal gang, the, the, the transnational organized crime groups. Those people now have a captive victim population with no access to law enforcement, no language skills, no understanding of what protections they may be entitled to, and they can be trafficked, they can be exploited. We saw a bunch of extortion where somebody would open up a small business, which was illegal. They would have like a like a like a little kiosk out of their minivan. They drive around to Costco and buy beer and chips and stuff like that. Then they'd go sell them to all their neighbors. And then the the drug traffickers or the MS-13 members would come and say, you owe me 20 bucks a week or we're going to kill your husband. And once a year, they would kill somebody's husband just to let them know they were serious because there were plenty of people always coming in. So they had this captive victim population and we're trafficking children on a federal dollars, you said $10 billion over two years, we are sending children into these, these hell holes. So they're leaving a hell hole somewhere, trying to find a better life, which we can all empathize with, even if it's not legal. And then they end up in exactly the same situation, maybe worse, because there's no possibility of escaping out of it. This is where they thought they were getting free. And now they're in it being either sex trafficked or trafficked for labor. Am I more or less accurately stating that? Yes, you are. That's horrific. That was spot on. That's gross on every level. Um, and this should be a, a this should be a nonpartisan issue. And I, I don't, we've never talked about either ways that you guys vote. And I didn't, it doesn't really matter to me, honestly, because this is about human beings that are finding themselves. They're looking for an opportunity, which I said, I, I'm not real crazy about people doing it the wrong way. And yet nobody should be okay with it because all it's doing is moving people from one victim situation to potentially a worse victim situation because they actually had high hopes that they were coming out of uh, something terrible uh, and they don't have any family. They don't have whatever network or connections or anything they know about or even common language. Uh, when you go into these places, the minute you get out of these little these little enclaves, you're in Houston, Texas, or you're in uh, Casa de Maryland, and then suddenly you're just in like the outskirts of Baltimore, the outskirts of D.C. Not everybody speaks Spanish, so they're they're screwed. They have nowhere to run. Like they're they're isolated in these little compounds, and they can't escape. Yeah, yeah. And Kyle, something that I a lot of people don't know, and I was shocked to find out is a majority of the children are coming in from Guatemala. Okay. A lot of the children speak a Mayan dialect. Now, I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. Right. I've sat in to listen, right, with the interpreters. These Mayan dialects, like Quiche, Mom, other things, they sound more like Arabic than they do Spanish. I mean, it's to the point where I could not even understand one word. So sometimes our our little ones who were coming in from Guatemala, they they couldn't speak Spanish with the other kids. So think about it. You've got a child who you've brought in here who is they they bring them because they can victimize them. They can't ask for help in English. Neither can they ask for help in Spanish. They are completely vulnerable and it is absolutely unconscionable unconscionable. Now, someone in DC is looking at a spreadsheet, right? That's got all the A numbers, you know, the alien numbers of the children. I'm looking into the faces of these little kids. Right. It is the most horrifying. I I I cannot I could never express in words just how horrifying it is to know that these children are being victimized and there's no one to help them and we need to do better as the federal government. Period end of story. This is just, it's just unacceptable. Well, it's also one of those yeah, things where like Aaron, you're the, you're the Intel side of this. Like you're seeing data, but you can translate data into real, you know, your Marine Corps experience lets you see information and translate it into downrange what's happening. Uh, Tara's actually seeing the physical people, right? So your end of it, what, what were you seeing? What, you know, you, you're, what were you translating that to? And what did you see as being like the operational end that was, that was uh, being done on, on DHS side? 
Well, well, not just to answer that back at first, nothing was being done on my side. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as what you can see, though, I mean, the, the pattern was immediate right away. First off, the duration. You're seeing it like in kind of a consistent pattern. But it only started, again, in February 2021. For five years prior to this, not one of these cases. So there was an indicator of like, okay, this is an activity which they're trying to obviously exploit for whatever reasons. Two is there's also, there was a pattern of their immigration status. A, they're all legal, but B, they also were all trying to use defensive asylum. And this is a mechanism that they use being screened by credible fear, reasonable fear, which can keep you in the country. And it's like, okay, well, then I'll go see an immigration judge. Then I'll get my asylum claim or not. And that, that can take up to like three, four or five years. So that's their ticket to be able to stay in the country to conduct this activity. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this is also happening across three, three different groups across four different countries. This is a Romanian group from Romania. This was 18th Street Gang and, and um, MS-13 from Honduras and Salvador, Mexico. So it's like, okay, this is a much this is a much broader thing going on. This is maybe a, a, who knows what, but it's like, let's look into this. There's a lot of questions we can ask. We can collect certain things and you know, kind of narrow this thing down a little bit. And it was a no. How do you attribute the the date that you just mentioned, February, the, the month of February in 2021, and then also the fact that there was this tie-in between multiple transnational organized crimes groups? Um, you know, are they comparing notes? And why then? Why do you think? Oh, definitely. Um, we know they compare notes, first off. Um, th- when you talk to the aliens, for the, for the adults, for the males, you know, for the basically the gang members, mm-hmm. um, they have the same story every single time. Like right now, the common trend, and I've talked to asylum officers, the common trend for them now is like, oh yeah, everyone's saying that they're gay. And then that's their claim for persecution in their home country. Mm-hmm. So apparently this is, now, is, now is the way of qualification coming up. But like, for example, when they inter- interviewed by the asylum officers, by policy, by law, they're required to get a transcript of their interview. So now they have every single question and a complete line of questioning of what to do when they're confronted by asylum officers. That's why everyone's story, it's like, it doesn't just change over time. It's like, you see an immediate, it's like, okay, here's the new story. Okay, here's the new, you, you, it's so obvious. Asylum officers know, because I've talked to them as well. There is obvious fraud going on on a big, big level. We just don't care. They want the people coming in. It and, just, it doesn't matter to them. And what do you, what do you think the significance of February 21? I have a, a, an instinct, but I'm, I'm curious what your change your in administration, just the change. Went from Trump to Biden, straight up. Also, by the way, this is the other thing too. Um, talking about the, you know, the contractors that work for HHS that do all the case management. You know, as Tara said, like there, there's a lot of policy that goes into place, so it is kind of complex. It can get very, very confusing, especially if this is not like your job. You're just a contractor, kind of coming in, working for six months, then leaving a job, right? Right. Um, there are um, in it was February 2021, and then I think in March 2021, they made two notifications of rule changing of how to collect information and how to use the information for case managers. And I'm not kidding. They are, I'll send these links to you because they look rather insidious to me looking at it now by talking about removing the safety plan section, talking about reducing the number of questions you ask to the child of how they feel for their safety down to one question of, do you have any concerns? Like these are things put in writing, put in place that HHS one of these things came out the day after Biden was inaugurated. HHS makes a notice to change the rules. It's like, okay. It's like, really? But also then, according to the administration, there was no emergency. So why are they making this big change all of a sudden? We knew on the intelligence side, we knew there was a border run coming because we already saw the reporting back. I remember the earliest one being about January, I think, 8th, 9th, May the 10th, that big groups are coming up. CBP's published in these things. They're unclassified. It doesn't, you know, it's, it reaches everybody. 
and saying there are major groups forming right now mm-hmm. and they are in route. Then they are coming over because their economy has sucked for the past year. These people are hurting financially. So you're going to see a big, big push of people. So that just floods the system. And so now, you know, CBP, Border Patrol, they can't process these cases with efficiency anymore. It's just, all right, get them through, get in their NTA, their notice to appear. That's all it is. Um, also, the other part, too, is that so much of this was fueled by social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp. And yet, the, the, why were there no tech answers from Twitter, Facebook? Because we know that they were pushing out, you know, vaccine corrections and COVID corrections right. and, you know, election corrections. But no, apparently you can form caravans in which they were saying, like, yeah, go up there, you get asylum, no problem. And it's like, well, that's not true. And you guys know that's not true. But where is the government, you know? Yeah, where's the misinformation there? correction there, right? Um, let me let me ask you a question that I've seen a bunch and I've never had a great answer for, but I'm guessing uh, you have more visibility to it. The question always comes up when they talk about these caravans. And I recall those notices, by the way, of them forming, in fact, wearing things like, you know, Biden let us in with their logo from the campaign, which was very suspicious. Like, okay, who is paying for, who is running these operations of massive caravan formation um and and is it a single group of people or is this like a you know like a just a a movement that is organically forming do you have an instinct on that organic no um unless that comes from the cartels so and i'm not saying this is for every single group every single alien sure but no this is operated by the cartels because they have to go through cartel country yep. and then that means they got to pay Mm-hmm. And so these, these could be coyote groups that don't work for cartels, but they know, okay, this is your highway. I got to pay it. Here we go. Cool. Um, so no, yeah, this is, this is still organized crime from that part alone. They are the gatekeepers to this process. So even if the yeah. cartels are not the ones organizing it, they are still the ones that are facilitating it because they're the, the pass through and they're going to, uh, you know, aggregate and then move these, these units through your, is your sort of, uh, your contention, or at least from what you've seen. And, and yep. And every head is a cost. Sure. When every cost and it does kind of range here. Some people say it's like, you know, as little as fourteen hundred. I've seen it between eight and ten thousand dollars per head. That's a lot of money when you go over time. And so the accurate number as far as border crossings, it's not what the administration, you know, says it is of about like two and a half, whatever it is a year. The closer number for all people coming over. So this is people, you know, actually encountered people who were not encountered. They can see them getting away. People that were picked up on video. And then other people that were, picked, that were not picked up on video because the algorithm couldn't read them. You had all those things together. Border Patrol knows this. It's about, give or take, five, five and a half million a year. That's that matters. This is a big money effort. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a huge money effort. And Kyle, I will say the case that got me thrown off the Pomona intake site involved 24 children who came across as a group from El Salvador with a female. Coyote. Uh, and a lot of the kids were going to Ohio, but then others were being distributed around the country. And we know that they had this, this gang affiliation. We know this because the kids had said so. And so the fact that that's what got kicked me off the, off the site, I'm like, that's pretty drastic to Take a federal volunteer mm-hmm. who's putting forth serious allegations regarding the safety of children that as soon as this whole MS-13 case came up, that just was that was just too much for them to deal with. Because I said, hey, look, this involves 20, this is like 24 kids. And so what's what's happening here? And that was uh, yeah, that's not something they wanted people to 
to to know about. It makes sense. And may I one thing, please? And Sarah, were you the only one removed from from Ona? Yep. Yep. And it put a large chilling effect. Yeah, on people. I talked to somebody last night who worked in background. Uh, and she she said, Tara, we just we didn't even know what to do when they walked you off the site. I mean, they did it midday, yep. make a big spectacle. And they said, you know, we felt so we just felt so alone. Yeah, I was the only one who was who was walked off the site. I want to get into that story. Like walk, but... Yeah, I want to get into that story. I think that I think that is one of the really important things that people understand, which they don't. Um, you get a lot of this. Why aren't more people speaking out? Like what's going to, you know, how, where, where are all the brave people? And the answer is it's complicated. And I, I try to explain that in a way. I'm going to tell you my quick story. I, uh, on April 18th, went in, I had a conversation with my former boss. Uh, you know, I'd already knew that I was a marked man within the FBI and that was fine. And then I had a, uh, my, my SAC, the special agent in charge from Albuquerque drive three and a half hours with his Lieutenant who's called an assistant special agent in charge. The two of them showed up with no notice at my office, didn't even tell my boss that they were coming, rolled in, pulled me into a conference room, and then took my badge, my gun, you know, my authorities, all the other things, my credentials, all these kind of deals. And then, um, you know, walked me over to my desk to collect my personal items and marched me out the door, as you guys say. Like, it's a, it's a chilling effect. Everybody gets to see it. It was at 11 o'clock when they showed up. It was about noon by the time I walked out. Everybody's in the office. Nobody missed the day. And they drove me home in my own uh, work vehicle and, you know, kicked me out of my own work vehicle, which they took away with them and then asked me for some additional magazines for my uh, for my handgun, which was funny because I pulled down a barren a bin. I have a lot of guns and uh, or what people think are a lot of guns. So I pulled down this bin and it probably had like 100 plus magazines in there. And I was like looking for theirs. I was like, I don't know where yours are in here. But I pull them out and I'm like, here you go. You can take these two and get out of my get off my property. My wife was so uh, disgusted by what would happen. She put my body armor out on the the mailbox. So they didn't come on the property. And uh, while she was inside, it fell over. My wife is a champ. It fell over. So it was like sitting in the road. <laughs> I lived out in the middle of nowhere, so it didn't matter. But like it was sitting in the middle of the road when they drove up. It just says FBI body armor laying there. But the whole point, like you mentioned, is that chilling effect that letting everybody see that they're making an example, like this is what happens. And, you know, they, they're, they're making a very strong message sent with one exemplar. And then everybody else gets the message very clearly. So walk me through what that day was, because I'm sure you have a vivid memory of it. You know, what it was your normal morning and when did this kick off? And, and you know, what were the faces of your colleagues as you left out? Like, give me the whole story here. Yeah. So um, so picture this. I mean, it's a huge ballroom that we're working in. So it's a huge ballroom. It's open. So there are tables and case managers sit on one side and then the children come in and sit on the other side. So it was just rows of tables and a completely open space. So yeah, so on this day, um, the federal field specialist, he actually saw me in the hallway and said, hey, can I talk to you? And I'm, and he's with his security person, but I, you know, I don't think anything about it. He was always asking me about the, the high level cases because I was mainly working trafficking. I mean, he actually called me CSI and I told him, I said, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that's awesome. I said, but you do understand I'm not an investigator and we do need investigators here. So it would be great if we could get some FBI people or Homeland Security Investigations or HHS OIG. I was always saying we need real investigators here. So uh, anyway, so he he stopped me as normal. Hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. Yeah. He says, well, let me see if a conference room is open. And it wasn't. So we went outside and sat on the bench and he said, uh, Tara, he said, uh, I, I regret to say that um, 
you uh, are being accused of a violation of the code of conduct. And I was like, what? Uh, first of all, there was no code of conduct, you know, put anywhere. And I could not even imagine what thing I could have violated. And I said, really, uh, my goodness, what, what, what am I being accused of doing? And he said, well, we understand that you made a donation to some age outs and age redeterminations. And I said, well, yeah, actually I did. I said, and I have talked to my ethics counsel about it, who put me to HHS's counsel about it. I said, because just to, to go back, an age out is a child who turns 18 while they're in the program. Mm -hmm. That means immediately, right then, that's it. They are no longer an unaccompanied minor, and they are released from the site into regular population into the United States. Okay. So you're, you age, made a you made a contribution to someone that you basically saw that the system had managed to fail essentially like while they were in it. Yes. Um, and then they were just kicked out into the world. It's like, well, now that you've reached this magical number, uh, you're no longer important to us. And so you made a personal contribution, which I think yes. the government uh, sees as free speech, unless I don't understand how civil uh, how the Supreme Court cases work. But you can give money, and that's free speech, right? Yes. You. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not allowed to give money to the children who are unaccompanied minors, Sure, but you can to any person who's no longer right on the side. So that, that person could have had a gifts and go for all it matters. You, you could have been making a exactly. contribution in any way you wanted and nobody would ever think twice about it. Yes. Okay. And so this is a put up job. Always raising. Money. Yeah. People were always raising money. They were giving to, to fly kids before they turned 18 to make sure they got to their destination, you know, all kinds of stuff, mm -hmm. which I knew I couldn't do. I knew I couldn't do that. But so I was making this donation with the, the highest level person on the site responsible for the kids. It was the child welfare director. And so only he knew that I was making any donations. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I was making donations is because a lot of these kids, the majority were coming from Guatemala. They're not on the US dollar, right? El, El Salvador's on the dollar, mm -hmm. but Guatemala's on the quexale. So if they came across the border and all they have is quexales, they can't even eat for the day. And I thought, this is just horrible. So I was making donations. Not anyone on my team knew, nobody knew, because I don't believe, you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing there's that theology secretly yeah. Making, yeah so i was secretly making donations with the child welfare director and so anyway um he he said i think that was the thing that they they didn't realize that i reached out to ethics to find out what i could and could not do and I even, they looked at each other, even when I said that, I said, well, of course I made the donations. Yes, they're not part of the program and it's legal to do. There's no, there's no problem here. There were all kinds of things I, I tried to help with in certain circumstances with the children. Sometimes a family would fail um, uh, the, the, the approval process. We had a situation where someone was in Enterprise, Alabama, which was a no send zone because they so many kids were going there and they had to do a home study before a child could go and the dad failed the home study because the the con living conditions and so i was actually trying to help at the direction of people on the site is there another place could we help relocate the dad so that the he could be reunited and so there were all kinds of things i was always helping with 
kids. But that was one thing that I really thought was horrible that we're bringing kids here and then we're just kicking them out into the world. And so, I mean, you're, and you have an altruistic heart, clearly, like this is the reason why you volunteered for this particular program. There's no doubt. Like I can, yeah. I mean, if, if you haven't seen our Rumble channel, folks, go to our Rumble channel. You can see Tara's face. You can yeah. see what she believes in. You can see the way she's talking. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a, yeah. a powerful thing. That's why we do it on video as well. But you're, you're out there trying to do something that you know is right in a world full of wrong, understanding that the government has many failures, yes. but that doesn't mean that it's not made of people who have good yeah. hearts. So you're trying to do this thing. Um, they obviously got you with something that is a um, that is nonsensical. I feel very similar about uh, the way yes. they came after me. That was a that was a cover for action for what the actual action was. Yeah. What was the result of the end of that conversation? You're sitting on a bench. He tells you you've got ethics violations. You know you don't. Then what? Right. He said. Um, so what I'm going to need you to do then is write a statement about how you gave the donations and why you gave the donations. So I'm like, great, okay, no problem. So I think, you know, I'm just going back to work. And he said, and uh, we're just going to let you do that from your hotel. And I'm like, you know, I got lots of cases I'm working on. He's like, nope, this is the priority. We'll let you do this from the hotel. And I thought, I thought that was kind of weird, mm -hmm. but I still had not caught on to the fact that they were retaliating against me yet. <laughs> right. Just, Aaron is grinning right now because he knows exactly what this means. Yeah. Cause this is something you yeah. learned very early yeah. on in the military. You learn it on in, in other agencies. It's like, once they start separating you from the group, there's a reason why this is not an accident. Yeah. yeah. So it's funny looking back now, but so I still didn't know what was happening yet. And so uh, I said, okay, all right, no problem. So we're walking back in to the, into the building. And as we're getting ready to get to the huge we had these huge double doors to go into the ballroom. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, by the way, um, why don't you just collect all your things? And I said, all my things. He says, yeah, anything that's personal. He said, just collect all of your personal items. And I remember right then at that moment, I was like, uh-oh, this is not good. No, that's a sinking <laughs> feeling when that, when that comes down. <laughs> yeah, I had that sinking feeling. And so, you know, next thing, you know, at this point, my heart is racing and, you know, I'm walking back in and people who know me know I'm pretty chipper and happy and they could see the look on my face. And so I'm collecting my stuff. And one of the girls beside me She's, she was looking at me. She had, was new, had rotated onto the team. She'd been there about three weeks. And I said, remember when I told you that when I get walked off the site, it's going to be for trafficking? I said, well, I'm being walked off for trafficking. And she looked at me. <laughs> so I collected all my things and I, I'm walking out. And of course, all my friends are looking and they're horrified mm -hmm. as we're walking out and going down the stairs. I, um, the federal field specialist, he's trying to make small talk with me. You know, how did you enjoy being in California? Oh my God. And I said, Phil, um, Phil has a whole story about said, this, by the way, <laughs> it's the worst. I said, um, it is, it's awful. And I said, uh, I'm just curious, are you considering sending me home? And he's like, well, you know, that, that could potentially happen. And I said, um, you know, I've been a federal employee almost 19 years at this point. I said, are you saying this could potentially affect my career? He's like, well, that's possible. But, you know, I don't think so. And I, I mean, at this point, I am just completely panicked. I, 
at this point, I'm like ready, hyperventilating, like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? And so we get to the place where we badge in. So we're walking and having this nice conversation. And he said, you know, well, we're going to investigate. And I said, investigate. (laughs) This is when, then I really, I thought, okay, it cannot get any worse than this. And as I hand my badge to badge out, they took it. Field specialist says, can you, you can just give that to security. That's I, right. You're taking my <laughs> That's right. So that, yeah. So fortunately, I had great people who I'd been in contact with, and I'd already made two protected disclosures to DOJ, OIG, two protected disclosures to HHS, OIG. And I'm, I'm calling friends saying, hey, what do I do now? And so they walked me, you know, off the ledge, and I had to call my office, who they did not know at all I was working trafficking cases. So I had to call my office and say, okay, I need you to take a seat because I'm, I just got walked off the site and the SES is like, what? And I said, I've been working trafficking cases and I've discovered not only are they trafficking the kids, but they're also MS-13 is involved and they don't want that to get out. I said, I've already made protected disclosures to DOJ and here and there. And he said, I'm going to call you back. So he consensed with some people and he said, he said, Tara, he said, I want you to take a deep breath. He said, we got your back. He said, I will send agents to escort you home. He said, do you think you're safe? And I said, "I, I don't think they would be that dumb to do anything. And my husband ended up escorting me home. I declined an escort home, but they were, you know, they were concerned. Which is, which is the thing that we should have been. Yeah. You all get that. Like everybody asked the question about your physical safety, which is like one of the worst things you can imagine because we're in a world where that is plausible. I'm going to pivot over because I know Aaron's sitting there quietly and I know his story is, um, less cordial. You, you at least Tara were, were brought back to your own home agency and you've been able to continue your employment. Aaron, you did not have the same experience. Yours is a lot more like mine. That's why you and I are in kind of the same tribe. I told you the other day. Um, tell me, tell me how. First of all, how did it come to a head? Because it always comes to something. And was it something that you expected or did they catch you off guard? No, so, you know, so I actually went public. The first, when I blew the whistle on this, I was like in the shadows, no one knew who I was. Right. So after work, is no one knew anything. Right. And then I found more agency corruption and that's when I went public. And, you know, then they were like, okay, this, here's Aaron. And so from there, they were like, that was, you know, it's kind of awkward. So at work, you know, people were told, like, don't talk to them. Just don't interact, <laughs> you know. And like that, that alone was like, okay, so they're going to clearly investigate, which, which is fine. I don't want people to get, you know, investigated also. So it's no big deal. People still came up on the side and they were like, you know, respect you. That was cool. You know, that was, wow. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but so then, uh, uh, this is a while later. I got So I got my investigations. Um, I go through it. I have my attorney. We go back and forth. And then I get called in one day and say, hey, be in the lobby at 9 a.m. And I was like, all right, that's all I need to know. I know it's going to happen now. That's right. So that's when they read me out. Um, they gave me um, tell people what that know, looks like, by the way. And then they said, like, we're not, not everyone's familiar. What's my bu- my buddy Steve Friend gave me a hard time. He was like, all you security uh, guys who know about security clearances talk about reading out. Oh. Like, what? he's like, what is reading out? Uh, tell people what that looks like. Yeah, so basically, um, they just you have to go through all your um, all your statements, all your signed statements, saying, you know, I will protect this information for I think seventy five years, the duration of your life, whatever it was. So I had a top secret SDI. Um, I had your garden variety. Apartments, SITK, MHCS. Um, and then they just say, like, all right, sign this, you're out of it, sign this, you're out of it. Uh, they get a brief from the security officer saying, you know, 
according to the statements you've signed, which is, you know, by law, you gotta, I never get anything classified, but it's like, you know, no big deal, whatever. This is part of the process. I understand yep. it. I already knew this was going in the game. Yep. Um, so I get my readout and they say, um, okay, you can telework though. So you gotta, you gotta stay on telework um, and you gotta log in, but you, you can't go into any like immigration systems because we don't trust you anymore. You can't go do any work. So, so you got your research, like, you know, open source, whatever. No. Yeah, recipes. So I log in every day. Yeah, I, you know, I've read books. I've read, you know, not, not on work. Don't worry. Um, and, and so then so you were forced telework was uh, essentially like was, administrative leave, though. Is that correct? I mean, that was more or less the thing. It was an administrative leave check in with us every day. Yeah, basically. And, you know, and I'm not gonna lie to you. So um, my first line supervisor, my second line supervisor, they were great, very professional. They weren't, you know, they weren't trying to make anything bad for me. Um, it wasn't a, the weird part for me was when I finally get like, you know, sat down um, by the, I think it was the division chief. And it's like, it's like this thick, this paperwork. And it's like, I signed the acknowledgement receipt. Okay, this is the process. Okay, I got that. I understand it. And so I'm kind of flipping through. I'm not reading the whole thing. Flipping through like what they say. And like just the one of it where it said, you know, we basically, we've lost trust in you. And I was like, right, because in your in their own language, I revealed the identity of protected applicants who were seeking asylum. And it's like, there you go. Like, I'm showing sex traffickers. We're, we're, we're not talking the same thing, guys. Like, you see this literally and nothing else. And I can't, and I'm sorry, I see this right here and those, they'll never meet up. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was telling for me, um, I didn't regret it. And once, once I finally got a hold of Tara, cause I saw her video come out we talked and, you know, we met in Phoenix. That was, some, that was awesome. It was a great time meeting you too, of course, Kyle. Um, but when I asked her like, you know, about cases and like whatever happened with things and she did say like one of these kids like did get pulled out of a sponsor because of, you know, trafficking concerns. And I was just like, you know what? That's worth it alone. It's like, it's, it might be just one kid, but it's like, that's someone's life. That's just, it's now, because the average age, by the way, for a trafficking victim, is like seven to 10 years. You get trafficked seven to, seven to 10 years later, you're probably dead. And so it's like, you know what? That's good enough for me because who, who knows what this kid could have gone through. Um, so yeah, that was that. Most people and then can't. I, when I get my fire notice. It was. Uh, yeah, most people but, can't put that on their. Uh, they can't put that on their tally. Like I've done something that directly resulted in another human being be able to live the rest of their life. Um, there's very few people that can do that. Even people like in the medical field, generally speaking, can't make that call because, you yeah. know, you, you just don't know. Um, that's a very tangible thing when someone gets pulled out of a thing where basically everybody in there dies in a pretty short period of time. That's, um, right. you know, I, I think and, that, um, that, that makes it worth it. I agree with you. Yeah. And uh, so it did work also like in this, in this time frame. They did try to like change some policies, like you know, okay, like they basically a lot of things that I addressed. They tried to go like you know, okay, we should we should look at these things, and like they tried to maneuver in the back end. Doesn't matter. It's like yeah, you have to make systemic changes in this program, otherwise it's going to keep happening. Um, because we have no it, where I worked at is called USCIS FDNS Fraud Detection National Security. Like we have no teeth. Um, we're even our bark is very quiet. Um, but getting back to the uh, the firing part. Um, so I sit down with the the person above the division chief. And I knew her and she's a good person. Uh, she didn't, she didn't enjoy, you know, she didn't enjoy the process. She you know, said like, I'm sorry to do this as part of the job. And I was like, don't worry about it. It's, you know, enjoy your deer. She hunts deer, enjoy deer hunting deer, you know, live your life, do your thing. But it's like, but that's it. I, I can't, I can't do this program with you guys anymore. It's just, this is too much. So. And then, um, 
what is your, so your status is, is terminated. They, they give you a nasty SF 50 that says you were terminated for cause or something to that effect, or what does it say? Um, I didn't download my last SF 50. I did get, again, I got the whole packet and I, I sent it to my attorney. I was like, if you want to, you know, if, whatever, whatever you think, sir, like, I'll do, you know, whatever I do. Cause if we want to for like posterity or for other cases in the future, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll do a good college try, but I'm not trying to get my job back with them anymore. If they don't trust me, that's fine. They don't trust me. Right. Um, but yeah, so I'm fired from that. Uh, but that's only been about like two weeks now, I guess. Give or yeah, take. I, I know that's fresh so. information. It was something you probably knew was coming. It still doesn't feel any better when you start learning it and you actually have to process through that. Um, it's, yeah, it's weird. It's really weird, right? Especially because you just, I'm just doing the math on here. You've got almost 18 years total of working for the federal government in, in some way or another. That's your entire adult life. Um, I always tell people mm -hmm. that the, that betrayal is not something that happens from a stranger. It's someone that you trust stabs you in the back. And I have to imagine getting walked out, uh, for Tara and, and, you know, losing the job has the same feeling that I've thought about it. And I, I only had 10 years of total, you know, federal time, but you're like, I believe in the government. That's why I signed up to do these things. And then they put the knife in between your shoulder blades. <laughs> you can't reach it cause it's back there. That's, that's yeah. the thing that hurts, right? Right, it does. And, you know, keep in mind, too, that I've done more than just a stock mission. I've, you know, I've worked on terrorism cases. I've worked on, you know, obvious fraud cases, a lot of things. And it's like, even have even and people at work knew my sentiment of a lot of our failures. Um, the, the Chinese spy thing alone was like, oh, my gosh, guys. Um, but, like, I've seen plenty of already, like, just failures again and again and again. But it still was like, oh, wow, you guys don't trust me? I'm like, no offense, guys. I, I point out somebody who's very, very bad doing bad things. And your take on it is, yeah, but, you know, he's an asylum seeker. And it's like, all right. It's just, it's a culture and I'm not part of it. That's right. Uh, and you and I are going to do a, a whole nother interview, which I told you, we'll, we'll get into all the things about uh, failures on the counterterrorism front, on the failures of the counterintelligence front, of which they are numerous. And I think that'll be very eye-opening for folks. I don't want heads to explode when they listen to this because it's so it's only so many things people can process at any given time. So we're going to, we're yeah. going to, uh, you know, listeners, you're going to know that we're going to do this another moment where Aaron and I will get into the deep end of um, some of the significant failures. DHS is a totally other animal. Uh, we, you know, you talk about $10 billion, that's a splash in the bucket for their $120 billion budget that they have every year. $5 billion a year is nothing. And then that's on HHS side. I don't know how big HHS is, but I'm sure it's enormous as well. So um, I want to kind of pivot back in there. You got walked out of the site, uh, Tara. You neither of you guys stopped. That's the real key for me. And this is why this is why I want to keep talking about it. The fight doesn't end because you get walked off the site. You still have friends in there that are that are seeing these things. What is going on in the Pomona site or any of the people that have come to you since then that you've seen um, now that you're sitting in a different government spot? Obviously, you're going back to your regular job. But like what what's what's the developments that happen from the time you get walked off there and they take your badge? Yeah, well, I mean, it takes a moment to recover from that, right? Um, and then, you know, recorded interviews with agents and all kinds of things. But I just, I couldn't sleep knowing what, what was going on. That right now, today, Kyle, there are children who are in crisis, right? When Project Veritas went and knocked on the doors, children are telling their stories, you know, the 15-year-old girl who has to quit school so that she can pay back her debt to the cartel. Mm -hmm. The 16-year-old girl who's trafficked by her sponsor, who's supposedly her aunt. That she's never met. Her out for sex. Right. That she's never met. You know? So 
knowing these things, and I've heard children screaming for their parents. You know, I've watched kids have panic attacks because they didn't know where they were going. I mean, I just couldn't, I just couldn't live with it. I just couldn't. And so, you know, I went through every avenue and attorneys and all kinds of stuff. And I said, what can I do with my first amendment right to bring this to light? Because I, I, I've done all the correct channels and now what can I do to, to help these kids? And so I'm really grateful. I mean, first it was Project Veritas. Yeah. What was their, their actual advice on that stuff? Did they give you like, here's your left and right boundaries? Did they tell you? They were like, please don't do this. You're going to put a target on your back, <laughs> you know? Yes. You understand that, you know, you have your job now, but if you continue down this path, you know, at some point they might not appreciate it. But uh, I, I cannot, my worldview has just been changed. And I, I recognize just like the two of you, because to me, you all are heroes. And I see that one voice truly can make a difference. And this, by, by continuing to speak out, um, it's led to some pretty amazing things and that I hope are going to continue. Uh, Texas, the, the AG's office, they're, they've got some human trafficking teams that are hopefully going to go rescue some of these kids. Yep. Florida uh, has, has had a lot of, of testimony. I've, I've talked with a lot of prosecutors. And what's interesting is that as scared and terrified as people are to come forward, it's interesting. Everyone said, you know, if you can get me a subpoena, Tara, I'll, I'll come forward. And so I think that's, Sometimes I think HHS may be miscalculated that nobody would ever come forward. But so there's lots of good people who have started to come forward, who've been subpoenaed. They want a subpoena. Can you imagine? Please get me a subpoena. Well, that's and something really important about that. Telling their story. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you bring up a really important point because I have the same situation with FBI. Uh, and, you know, we're all seeing different sides of the federal government, but they're, they're all the same, which is that people want to speak. They're not allowed to speak. But if yes. you if you called them and put them under yes. oath, they would say the truth. And there is a big difference yes. between that. Like it takes someone like both of you, it takes someone sometimes like me to go out there and, and take the take the first flag. Someone's got to be the first one through the door so that these yep. attorneys, whether they be AGs of a state or whether they be federal prosecutors, know what yes. the problem and what the scope is because they don't even know where to direct their fire. But when you give them a yes. grid coordinate and you go, look, go call that human being in this office and have them come under oath and say the things that they have to say. They're obliged to say the things that are true. They don't get to hide behind policy when there's federal law in play or state law in this case. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of the really interesting thing. It lets you be a lightning rod for all the all the nastiness, but it also gives you ability to channel that um, into a place where it can do some good. Yes, yes. And so we're hoping that that's going to lead to some federal things as well. Mm -hmm. So hopefully... You'll be hearing some interesting stuff coming out of the Judiciary Committee, and um, I, I have it on pretty good, pretty good faith that something's going to happen with that. So I'm, I'm hoping that's, that's the case. The main thing is, and people are like, "Why do you keep doing this?" I said, "Because one, kids need to be rescued; two, bad people need to be locked up; and three, this program that HHS has completely lost control of needs to be reformed." Period end of story. Yeah. So this has been going on for years and years, trafficking in this program. It won't and get fixed overnight at all. Yep. No, but, you know, Senate, you know, reports back for years 
And these, these paper activities are not, are not saving the children. So something drastic needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And hopefully uh, this is, this is going to continue to spark action. Yeah. Aaron, did you have something you wanted to weigh in on there too? You, you had that look. Um, I mean, yeah, so I, I've been looking through this program again, like the, really the policy part, because government is just, that's their blood. They're driven by policy. Yep. And on top of that, you know, they're, they're, their agency policy, their interim policies, all these like little, you know, snap and prompt two things. The rule changes, that's the eye for me, is just how much they accomplish in, in the administrative state by rule changes. That, those are insane to me. Um, but I've been going through just to make sense of it because it's hard to, because it's, you know, it, it's government, it's boring, right? It is. But it's like a lot of meat is right there. Yeah. And um, and like no one looks at these things. Like there's got a view count on all these websites of like, you know, a notice of rules of rulemaking changes. And they, some of these things are less than 400, less than 300. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to change the entire collection form of when you talk to a child. It's like, well, well, wait, when did we agree on that one? Where is that democracy in play? And why was that done on the 21st of January 2021? Um, but I do have, I mean, it's like I, what Tara is talking about with the states, that to me is, a, a I think, a, a much stronger thing because local politics is a great way to go. And they do have authority. They do have a lot of power mm-hmm. if they're willing to just, I mean, just wield it, guys. Like, stop yielding it to the feds for a response to this one. You know, there are a lot of border states, a lot of states that are impacted by this. Like, you have investigators, you have the teeth, like, start using them. Because that might be the, the quickest way to at least stop the kids from in this program and to find some bad guys. And we can do those two things first. It's like, back end, you know, we can work on that policy if there's reform possible. Yeah, there, there's still a thing there, maybe. But it's like the, the kids getting out of it and the bad guys getting caught up. It's like that's got to be prioritized first. And I think states, especially if they had the data from HHS. Yes. Because like my take is if any law enforcement agency from, you know, city, county, state, if they have a case of, you know, involving a child in this program, I think they should get full access to everything this kid's gone through. Every single piece of paper, every single file has to go to them because totally they're going to be the action arm. That's right. Mm-hmm. How many um, how many attorneys generals from different states have signed on to or committed to doing some sort of action based on the whistleblower activity from the two of you? There you know, one. Yeah, that I know of right now. Yep. We've got two, but things in Utah, I think, are in the works. So we'll see. Okay. Stay tuned. And, yeah. So, uh, and there's and there should be some more. I think us. You would think soon, just by by proximity of where the problem is. Yes. Um, but we'll see. So Texas and Florida have been forward leaning. It sounds like you said Utah's on the ropes, but uh, probably coming into the fight as well. Um, what's What's interesting is, is I think people have seen in the last couple of years that every state functions as a border state now when DHS and and uh, or rather HHS is willing to ship people everywhere. Um, you know, whether it be from in the middle of the night, plane rides and all these kind of things that tip something in Aaron's head. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, Virginia alone, right? Because I used to live in Virginia. And I think th- of, the, of the 12 total things that I saw, the 12 total encounters I saw in eight months of these, you know, gang members trying to get kids, I want to say like three or four of them came from Virginia, or at least in the surrounding area. There was a large population of um, uh, not just, you know, the the peoples from, you know, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, but the activity of the gangs as well. Like right. parts of Alexandria, parts of mm-hmm. um, Outer Fairfax County. And like places like Alexandria, that's a, that's what, what do they call it? What city? A sanctuary city? Yes. So there is a, they, criminals know to go there because it's almost in and out and they can, they're not going to get booted out of the country that way. That's right. Yeah. So I've, I've done surveillance. 
I've done surveillance on a house out there and we were watching it. And the reason was, is that there were supposedly like 10 or 15 families living in a four bedroom house, uh, which is pretty standard in these sort of illegal immigrant type uh, occupations. And then one of the guys in there might've been a top 10 fugitive who killed like two federal sources down in Texas and then left. He was a top 10 fugitive for the state of Texas. So we, we sat on it. We saw him. He came out on a bicycle. He went down to a corner store and we grabbed him. And yeah, that stuff happens every day. Like there's a ton of MS in the greater DC area. My old field office, Washington field handles it in Maryland, handles it in DC, and then a ton of it in, in Virginia as well. So I mean, all these places are border States, even though they don't have a border with Mexico or anywhere touching Latin America. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, when the federal government is paying, I think this is the thing that I wish people could understand. And I, I know it's hard for people to get their minds around because it was hard for me mm -hmm. to understand that the United States government is creating the pull. We're creating the pull because we are the middleman in the trafficking operation. We are taking the children in and then paying all these midnight flights all around the country, right? The United States government is paying that bill to distribute the kids all around the country. So to your question that you asked Aaron in the beginning, why February, 2021, right? Why? Well, because gangs are about making money and the kids are assets to them. Yep. So when they are, you know, the easiest thing to compare it to is drugs versus the children, right? If they are trafficking drugs from Guatemala, it's a one-time use. So they got to get the drugs all the way, you know, across Mexico, across the border where they're going to use some of it, lose some of their product. They got to pay a distribution chain. So for a one-time use, but when they're trafficking children, all they got to do is get them to the border and then we take them and then with tax dollars, we distribute them. So for the traffickers on this end, they view that child as a continually paying asset. These traffickers make residual income. They are building their assets off of the $10 billion we're investing in the program. And policies have consequences. This is why they're, they made the run on the border was in order to be able to set up these networks, be able to create these rings where, hey, we got we got 100 kids. I, I don't think people get it. This is residual income for the trafficker. Every hour they've got these 100 kids working, they're making money off of it. They don't give these kids their paychecks. I mean, go back. Uh, people can look at the videos uh, back from 20, it's called Trafficked in America, off of this report. They actually went and showed the squalor conditions the kids were living in, how they take their paychecks, and it's it's horrific. And we are the middleman in the trafficking ring. Well, and it's 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 unacceptable, unacceptable. It, it's almost more like we're the last mile. I don't know if you've ever seen this service, but sometimes like you'll have um, you know the, the FedEx or UPS or whatever will move things around to their logistical hubs, and they hired these contractors that are called last mile or last, you know, last mile distributors or something like that. They're all called something similar, but they do the last little bit of the uh, logistical chain to getting it from point A to point B. And then, and as you just mentioned, I think this is so point. Like I never thought of this this way. When drug traffickers are moving a drug, they have to get it from A to B themselves all the way, and it's a one-time use. Right? It goes from fill in the blank country. It makes it over our border in any way, shape or form. Then they are also got to get it through our 
you know, uh, highway systems and all the logistical routes there. And they've got to make sure that they maintain it and secure it and all the way and make sure that the dealers don't take it. And then it gets, you know, sent out to the end user of that product. And that's the end of it. And so it's a, it's a, an A to B. This is more like moving a rental car and letting someone get it, you get it to the hub. And then not only do they get it to the hub, like someone's going to drive it to where it needs to go, where it's going to make the most money. And then it gets rented out over and over again. So it's almost a durable good. And we're not just talking about sex trafficking. We're obviously talking about uh, abusive labor, uh, child labor exploitation, where, you know, you, you mentioned the slaughter factory. So it doesn't only, I mean, all sex trafficking is the one that, that hits our heart the hardest, I think, because it's such a, it's such a destructive force forever. But um, being worked in a slaughterhouse at the age of seven or eight or 10, whatever these things look like, is equally atrocious in many ways because of just, there's just no coming back from it for these kids. Um, it's incredible to imagine, and and it's it's more than just a soundbite. I want people to, to grasp this. You've talked about government-sponsored trafficking operations. We are literally in the logistical chain of these transnational organized crime organizations. Like we're it, we're part of their um, their business model in this case. All of us. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Aaron, so, I'm sorry. I got I got to cut in here now. So we also know that these talk organizations. They abuse the immigration system by using defensive asylum. Okay. And that's, you know, as you, so as you don't know, there's affirmative asylum, which is like your traditional way of thinking about things. You, you know, go up to a US official and say, I'm in threat of my life being killed if I go back home. Can I have asylum? You think about this like political reasons. Mm-hmm. Defensive asylum is you've already been encountered, you're being put in removal proceedings, you're going to get deported. And then you say, oh, but if I go back home, they're going to kill me. It's almost like a grabbing that last branch on the way down. And so to go through this process, Traditionally, you would first be screened by an asylum officer, and this is called credible fear or reasonable fear. And these things were on average approved about like 77 to 80%. These were approved like, yep, you will qualify for this. Go to the immigration judge. 70 to 80% of those. And And then the IJs, the immigration judge, they'll review your case and go, yes or no. And they said no on average of about 85% of those cases. So the it, it's a complete disparity. They're like, yep, you're good. And it's like, no, you're not. And that's why I blew the whistle publicly, because the Biden administration, via the employee union of USCIS, they wrote policy to change the rules to shift the adjudicative authority of defensive asylum away from immigration judges and giving it to asylum officers. So those those 85% no cases will very quickly become yes cases. And so now say that, say that one more time for me. No. Say where the authorities have been changed from. Yeah. It's it's gone from a judge to just like a administrative officer. Asylum officer. Yeah, asylum officer. It's and not, no, and let me get not a judge. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. That's why I blew the whistle on. I'm like, guys, this is worse than you realize. And so when you have these people now abusing the system, because now they'll come off the watch list, they're no longer being targeted or seen, and they keep that trafficking going. It's not going to stop them at all. And then don't forget that watch list was capped at 40,000. Um, and I wasn't going to say, but the, the question you had, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, the, they, the authority. You, oh, yeah. yeah they, the, the, the authorities. Okay. So there, this is a Biden administration policy to take it. For, and this was advocated on behalf, like by the by the union. Is that what you were saying? Yes, because Joe Biden, um, he accepted the Democratic Party platform in you know 2020. And like it was that was published in, you know, I think it was August 2020 to the DNC uh, convention. Mm-hmm. And then in, in a debate in, I think, October 2020, that's when you know Joe Biden said, like, I am the Democratic Party. Like, yep, this is me. These are our policies. Right. So read through the Democratic convention, you know, whatever. You can just control find. Look for immigration judge. It's mentioned one time. 
all it says in that entire time, and that and that one thing it says, we're going to give you less political, you know, of an environment. We're going to give you more autonomy, more freedom to do your job as IJs. They talk about reforming CBP, coming hard down on, you know, ICE. There's that. We're never USCIS is never mentioned at all. So you can see how the way the club operates, what they want to do. Yep. And yeah, so the employee union, even this is before uh, Biden's inaugurated. They're writing white papers on how to change this, make this rule change of give us the authority to do defensive asylum claims. That's the majority of asylum. It's not affirmative. It's coming from defensive asylum. So let us make those things. And then there, there is your program of just keeping everybody in the way it is. Why would they want so, that? Um, why would the union want that? Yes. Is it a political, well, is it a political lean of the membership or is it something that benefits the agency yeah. in some big way or both? So no, it's not to be fair. As far as membership, I won't say yeah or nay to that one because that'd be a lot of asylum officers. Who knows, who knows what they think? And they, they may have a good will for it, this or whatever. But as far as the leadership, yes. Because USCIS, um, the majority of their leadership positions come from this division of the asylum folks. It's called REO, Refugee Asylum International Operations. They're the ones that run USCIS. So you you come up through them and you're in charge of like the club and pulling strings and stuff. And um, yeah, that's that's just the way it works. But I've also talked to asylum officers because, you know, they've some reached out to me and been like, Aaron, that was cool. Yeah, we, we stayed in touch, became friends, whatever. And they're telling me what's going on right now because they're hiring, obviously, like a thousand officers to be able to do this upcoming job. I don't think the rule change is in effect yet because Ken Paxton sued in Texas. Okay. So hopefully they win, but we'll see. But they're basically ready to pull the trigger and like just start running through the claims quickly, get everybody approved. They become citizens very fast. So they but, are um, removing, they're removing the block, right? They're removing that block that would stop yeah. um, and, and it would basically, it would eliminate that three to five years and that decision that they would have would just be a final decision um, instead of going to a judge who eventually may remove those basically. people. That's incredible. Basically, for all, for all intents and purposes, yes. And um, and so I've talked to some officers as far as like, you know, what's going on with the, hey, how's work? What are you guys doing now? And they all say like, oh, it sucks. Like the workload sucks. Like we are just swamped. Mm -hmm. And it really sucks too, because we're bringing in new officers. This is their first job. Um, people are, some of these people are quitting during training to become an asylum officer and they're just going somewhere else in the government. It's like, it's that bad for them. Um, what else was there? There's a few other things too, but it's basically, it's like, you you can see that what the corruption has done. It's like, it is, we know what this program is guys. Like just call it what it is. This is open borders and that's the way you guys want it. Right. Yeah. But. And they don't understand that it's not humanitarian. And, you know, what was interesting is that I had someone high up in HHS on the site say, you know, have you ever considered? And this was only after the MS-13 case, right? So turning in all the other trafficking cases, nobody ever questioned, you know, if I had cultural biases. But when uh, when I brought up this, you know, this case and was passing forward all the information, you know, someone actually said to me, you know, you might want to check your cultural biases. And I said, you know, I said, you might not realize, but my husband is from El Salvador. Oops. I can assure you, I don't have cultural biases. And I would not have volunteered for this mission to help migrant children if I was, you know, if, if I had biases against these people. The challenge is, is that these policies have very negative consequences on people. And that's the thing. It's like you shared at the beginning. Um, it, it makes people slaves because they have no access to law enforcement. They can't, they can't get help. 
you know? And so this is not humanitarian. And I think there's a lot of people and I, you know, I'm one included. If we roll back the clock two years ago, I would have thought that, that this unaccompanied child program was, was a great thing. Wow. We're reuniting kids with their families and this is going to be awesome. What I didn't realize is, is where the kids were going. And so I think it, this is, it's like you said in the beginning, this isn't a, a political issue. This is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. This is, these are children. And I would hope that everyone would be able to say, we, we have to do better for, for kids than to put them in the hands of criminals and, and, and traffickers. We have, we have to do better. Yeah. We have to do better. I always know that you're on the right side of the, of of any uh, discussion when there is an appeal to be made both to the left and to the right on the political spectrum. I like to think I'm in the middle. I'm probably not. My wife tells me I'm on the right, but so be it. Um, I I'm an independent one way or another, and I don't follow a party platform. And when it comes down to should people be able to live their lives and not be murdered um, or be under threat of murder on a regular basis, should they be able to live their lives without being sex trafficked by someone who will murder them if they do not do the things they are told? That is not a partisan issue. I cannot imagine what side wants to defend that, but it is an ignorance issue. It's people that are not willing to see that, look, the federal government is not, I think we could all three agree here, and and uh, producer Phil would say as well, you know, the federal government is probably the worst solution to any problem. Sometimes there's no other solution, so it has to step in and be that thing. But as you mentioned, state government, way better. Local government, far closer to the people. So many people have talked to me as an FBI agent and said, um, this thing is happening. What should I do? And the answer is, you call 911. Like, why are you asking me a question? You call 911 when that happens. They don't even know how their local law enforcement works. They don't know what they're paying for with their own dollars. And they live in this country and they speak the language. So I can only imagine that you come in from El Salvador and you have no idea. And maybe you have a, a natural distrust of the police if you live in Mexico because there's corruption all over the place there, that they have no ability to process this culture and what access to law enforcement they may have. And when they do deal with us, they're always shocked. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that you would help us. Um, we've gone through on some of these extortion cases, just for your guys' awareness, where MS-13 is threatening somebody with their life, and the federal government, you know, the FBI in this case, pays the extortion money to build the case against the person that is extorting. We give the $20 every month, every week, whatever it may be, mark the bills, and then build that case so that we can go and get that person removed. But there's another person that steps in. That's what that's what gangs do. They've got an entire pecking order. So it's just the low man on the totem pole we're picking off. It's transactional business for, for law enforcement. But the locals don't know that. The, the, these poor people that are being um, threatened with their life, like I said, their husband may be on the chopping block because this woman doesn't give 20 bucks every week. Um, it's horrific. And there's no political aspect in this. It's just human. You, you mentioned it was a, you know, I've heard humanitarian crisis a whole lot. And, uh, and I see you nodding along, but this is a humanitarian question. It's not a political question and it shouldn't be. We should all be able to get together and just say, look, these open borders, the real consequences are people suffer in a really, really bad way. And, and Aaron was able to see it in a, an intelligence thing. And you were able to see the faces that it was resulting in. And we all know what that is. I saw it on the law enforcement end of it after they get to where they're going, because I've worked, you know, trafficking cases and I've sat on those things and. I've watched doors to see like how many men are going to be coming out of here. It, you know, can we see a, a younger female coming in and out? And if they, we do, like that's kind of the indication that that's where it's happening. You don't know, but they take it all over the place. They do all kinds of horrible things. So we've all seen this in our own sphere. And these are three different governmental departments under the cabinet. Three of what, like ten or twelve or however many cabinet level positions. They all have massive failures. 16, yeah. Is it sixteen now? 
Yeah, I believe you. I, I, our, our government probably used to have what, like three when the, it was like three guys. It was like a department of war. It was a department of commerce and something else. <laughs> now it's, everybody's got a department, uh, for some reason, roads and transportation underneath it. They're all doing a great job when we got derailments and child trafficking and, mm. you know, we're, we're going after pro-life activists. I find, uh, I just read another article, you know, that was talking about indictments of people sitting outside of an abortion clinic of all things. So, um, Crazy. Is there, yeah, what are, what are some of the action items that people can do in their own world? Everybody always wants to know. It's like every, the scope of the problem, I think, is well documented now, even in the last hour and a half that we've been talking. What can people do concrete, you know, whether it's, who, who can they go to? What can, what can they do on their end? Because a lot of people feel powerless when they hear this stuff. And, uh, and either one of you, um, if you both have thoughts. I might stumble through mine. Tara, do you want to go first? Oh, I'll go sure. after you, bud. Okay. All right. Well, I would say uh, call your local local legislators and ask them, right, where are the children, right? What, what's happening with all these children who are coming into our state? Where are they and who are their sponsors? So the, the big secrecy right now and the lack of transparency is around who are the sponsors. So it's an easy fix. People just have to somehow get HHS to turn over the data. So it's probably going to be at a state level, like Florida's doing, Texas is doing, and I think Utah is on the way to doing. And after, um, let's see, what were the states, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas, who had all these children found working in their slaughterhouses, maybe they're going to be the ones as well. So find out and, and, and say, hey, look, make the federal government turn over this information to the states. And then I would also say, call your federal people as well. Call your congressman, call your senator and say, where are these children? So it was on December 5th that five senators wrote a letter to Secretary Bercetta, who is the, um, you know, he's the head of HHS. He's the secretary and asked him to respond to these allegations. You know, is it true? Are these children being trafficked? There's been no response as of yet. So they can call their representatives and say, hey, what's going on with that? What is the response of HHS to the fact that they've been accused of trafficking children? So, Okay, so you're saying this, their state legislatures, which are obviously much closer to home and have yeah. much smaller districts, reaching out to those people, that's the first question. And then is there a concrete policy name that they should be referencing? Because I know a lot of times these um, the questions have, if we don't point our questions very, very directly they, uh, it's like, oh, I don't know. But if you give them a thing that they can follow up on, what is the name of the policies or, or, or programs they should be questioning about? The program. So it is Health and Human Services. So HHS, ACF, which is Administration of Children and Families, then ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, then UC Program. So the Unaccompanied Children program. Got so it. That's a mouthful. Do it backwards for them. Tell, tell them what the lowest level is, is the Office of Unaccompanied Children. So lowest level is um, the uh, Unaccompanied Children program, okay. which is under Office of Refugee Resettlement, under Administration for Children and Families, under Health and Human Services. Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, Aaron, you have some thoughts too? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> It's complicated. Yeah, so I typed it out. Um, so definitely it's the state government because um, all, the, the big part on this thing too is it's not just the federal government operating this. They have contractors. Well, those contractors have headquarters too. 
Some are in Oklahoma. Some I looked at some of them, and there's they, they received a lot of money. I believe a couple are no bid. And there's there's your first buzzer for me always too. It's like you got no big contract. We should look into that. Mm-hmm. So state government definitely get teeth. Um, if you don't know, ask right guys. But um, I would also recommend, especially states where they've already found these cases, guy. If you live in those areas, contact your local media and like ask more questions, get them more involved, point them to these interviews that also Tara's done elsewhere too. So there's a lot of good information out here. But um, I talked to a border patrol buddy of mine. And because I was asked previously once, because I, I believe it, this thing is, you know, this thing wants to be done because they need the labor trafficking to cheapen products, whatever, whatever. And if organizations, is okay if I call them out there quick? So, For sure. Okay. Same so thing in Judicial Watch. Yep. Start, yeah, start finally, get some FOIAs out there, pull everything you can, that you can, from all the government components that are doing this. So that goes from DHS to HHS. Um, I'm sure labor might be in there somewhere, DOJ, because they run the program. Yep. There's a lot of information that they can start getting. And it's just, I mean, centralize it. Like we have to start like ripping through it bit by bit because there's a lot of information to go through. It's not going to be easy, except that one too. But, you know, is it worth it? Yes. It's always going to be worth it because these are kids. And there's there's nothing ever more deserving than protecting children. Um, so yeah, definitely state government, local media, but then organizations like Judicial Watch and others I mean, just get involved, you know, start doing things that you know that you can do with your own powers. Cause they, they might see things also that like, I don't know about, I'm not an attorney, so I don't know how they would operate in those ways. Maybe there's other angles they can go at it too. There's a lot of possibilities yeah. and uh, talk to your friends, keep it simple, make memes. The government's sexual, the government's trafficking children. You know, th- there's things you can do to start raising awareness in these things. Yeah. That's a very local thing to do. Um, do you have any, uh, church groups that have reached out to you guys, either, either of you, or is there something that is being done on the, on the spiritual front? Because I do know that, uh, some of the, some of the, the big changes that we're seeing and, and particularly going after it with DOJ and things like that is when they start infringing on religious rights. I know people are starting to have a big awakening in this country about their own personal faith and what their church needs to be doing and acting in the world. Um, I'm just curious the, the, the answer may be no, but are, are there any churches that you're seeing pop up? All right. So when you say church, um, I'm not quite sure, but I know that there's a lot of organizations that are called like Catholic Charities. Uh, there's a Lutheran one. They're receiving a lot of this money to do a lot of these operations, these fake home studies and everything else. Like there is a problem there as well about these um, these organizations. So that's not a spiritual front. That's more of a like, no, but there are, if you, if you know those organizations, look into it, call them up, start demanding things, start getting information out of them. Um, as far as locally with church groups that I know about, I can't say, um, I'm Orthodox. So I, you know, I've talked to a few people in my church and actually it's kind of cool because, uh, two of them have actually worked with like counter trafficking before. Uh-huh. And so they've helped me find a few other people too, to be able to like, you know, kind of continue this thing going. Cause I'm not stopping with the, whatever I can into it. Um, but yeah, and I, that's definitely a great one. I would love to figure out how to reach out to what I think are the most important people to, for this to learn as far as an audience. I keep saying it's going to be moms and and women because just inherently, I mean, talking about caring for, for kids, you're going to get it from them. Yep. Um. So, however, we can talk to you know, I don't, I've I've been told of a few like Moms for Liberty. There's a few other ones out there. It's like we got to start talking to them. They got to start getting out to their networks and like getting people aware of these things, and really just kind of you know empower people just to do the pressure on organizations that are involved in these things. Um. People, you know, these things will come to pressure. Yes. They will cave. It's just like it's just like when when you get a subpoena, it's like, oh finally, I can I feel good now. I can go do this. 
it goes the, the inverse way when you go the opposite. When you put pressure on a bad thing, they will they will collapse quickly. It's just they got to feel it. To follow on with that, so I go to McLean Bible Church, and my pastor had gone to Nepal and talked a lot about the sex trafficking that was going on. And so he was one of the first people who I ever heard talk about sex trafficking. I just didn't know it was going on in the United States at this time. And of course, I didn't know it was going on in this program. But um, there was there are a couple organizations. So Tim Tebow actually has an organization that's involved with child rescue. Okay. Uh, from trafficking. And then um, there's a group called A21. I think that's Christine Kane. Um, International Justice Mission. So I, I learned about them, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And so, uh, but they are trafficking of children that are not here in the United States as much. Uh, so there are organizations out there that are doing it. So I don't know of specific church groups, but I know people, um, there are a lot of people who are in prayer over this. It's very interesting. Some of the people who I deployed with, it's very interesting. You know, it's like you said, you find that people with the courage to do these types of things have their faith in God. And so one of the other women who from this DC area, we both deployed, didn't know each other until we got to the Dallas intake site and we found out we were deploying together to Pomona. So the whole team that went to Pomona, we were all Spanish speakers. Mm -hmm. And so she's from Argentina, but here in the DC area and goes to a neighboring church. And so there are a lot of really great people who are involved in trying to help tell their churches about what's happening. Right. As well. No, I think it's all about setting stories. I'll put this too. Um, I'm because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, obviously. So if someone has heard this conversation and been like, dude, we talk about there's way better ways of doing this. Uh, the Twitter handles are, I believe, on the screen now, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Because if you'll tell people how they can get in touch with you and, and how they can uh, follow you and find out the information that you guys are exposing when it comes out. So fire away. I mean, mine's right there. If you guys see it, it's at called out DHS underscores in between, you know, called out DHS. Um, yeah, I don't have a billion followers. I will respond to DMs or comments. You know, I've already had a few times. Um, and I always make good comments whenever someone like, you know, if I I'm, I follow Tara, I follow you. When I see people retweet those things and quote tweet things, I always say like, hey, thank you, by the way. Keep keep doing this. People need to hear these things. That's right. Um, so yeah, be engaging. Like, you know, reach out. Yep. And if you don't see this on Twitter or, or True Social, but I will be uh, I will be tagging your handles as, when we put this out so people can find you directly through the uh, the tweets that we're sharing. And then it'll be in the show notes as well. So we'll give people ways to get in touch with you if they have questions or if they have suggestions. Um, they have job opportunities for you, Aaron, in the same sphere. Is this kind of what you think your your purpose is at this point? Because I know you're now probably in between some uh, income streams. Yeah, I was uh, like, you know, I that's the way my brain operates. I'm an analyst and I, I can't get off this thing. Um, so right now I'm just trying to make sense of it. And I feel like if I can help make sense of it, I can help explain it better. And if we explain it better, then we can all look at it and like, okay, how can we tackle this thing? So somewhere's in there, I'm just trying to make that a thing. Um, but however it works, it works. It's, it's not getting paid. is not going to stop me. Obviously. Um, this is a, it's something so morally harming, I think, that it's like we you know these kids have to be saved. And it's not just, you know, because it sucks physically. Like this and this, what they are going through spiritually themselves, I, I couldn't even imagine. And it's just like, if there's one good thing I think I should do, it's just help however I can in whatever way I can. You know, if I'm not the best at whatever, let me be the best at something else and do whatever I can. 
Yep. I'm going to so, see if there's some organizations. That, yeah, I'm familiar with some organizations that have uh, sort of kinetic ends of things, but they all have a back end. And I, and I know that's probably the harder thing for them to staff. So we'll try to see if we can find some things on there. Folks, if you are aware of an organization that's looking for people that have an analytical background, uh, that understand how the federal government works, that know what these problems are, and you want to reach out to either to me or Aaron, we'll, we'll put you guys in touch. Uh, Tara, what is um, what is the ways that people can follow you and keep track of you? Yeah, so I don't really have any social media except my Twitter. So I'm at Tara Lee Rodas at Twitter. So you can find me there. And if you reach out to me, I'll definitely get back to you. Uh, if you have any suggestions, you know, I'm new to this. I did not intend, I can assure you, <laughs> I did not intend to, to blow the whistle on child trafficking. I did not even know it existed in the program that I went to help. So I'm learning. And I want to learn as much as I can because I do want to learn how I can best help. So please reach out to me if there are resources that I should have. You know, I'm trying to read things. Uh, so I, I want to learn. And I, if there's anything I can do to help or shed light, I, I'd be happy to, to help in that way. I love it. Um, it is something that I think that we all share in common that, uh, you know, I don't know that we ever know why God puts us in a place that we are in. Um, but does give us the resources to be able to handle these things, not necessarily in our time, but in his. So I feel the same way about uh, a lot of this stuff. It, it's become a calling of certain types. And one of them is that I'm going to help kind of expose your story. Just from my personal perspective, I just wanted to tell both of you that I thought the things that you guys did um, were the most important. It may not be the biggest story. They're really big on Pfizer, but the most important thing that Project Veritas has done is expose this. And when I watched that story, uh, and and the folks that I talked to at Veritas were like, oh, have you seen our story? It's like, holy crap, that is the meat of what real what real exposure looks like to me. And I don't think the things that you know what I'm doing is just trying to keep D, you know DHS or DOJ and the FBI out of people's private lives. That would be really great if they would just leave people alone. This is active evil that is being perpetrated in a much much nastier way, and it is resulting on children who are the most vulnerable of us. And if we don't look out for children, we don't look for anybody. That's that's the fundamental Western value is looking out because children are the future one way or another. Like if you don't care about your future, then why are we doing anything? So I, I want to thank both of you guys for what you've been doing. Um, I'm going to have uh, producer Phil read us quick, uh, a little kind of outro here. He's got a couple of things, folks. If you are uh, liking what you hear, please do follow the Kyle Seraphin show. Please put some comments out there. Well, like I said, we'll make connections. If there's questions, I know that uh, Aaron and Tara will both be looking at these things and uh, we'll, We'll share this uh, around social media, but moreover, I want this, this message is not going to go away. We cannot let this stuff go quietly into the night because we're all paying for it. We're all complicit with our tax dollars, whether we like it or not. And we've got to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen on our watch without some fight back. So uh, Phil, if you got a, a five-star review from one of our uh, lovely uh, listeners, if you would uh, give us a read on that and anything else that you want to add on the end notes here. Yeah, sure. We got a nice one that came in just a couple of days ago. From One Daddy Two writing, awesome interviewer. You certainly have a way of staying on focus and bringing out the subjects that I want to know about, both outwardly and inwardly. This all is a spiritual issue, not realizing that would make this craziness in the world much more difficult to understand. Listen to you on the MLK podcast. We'll have to find out about that one, Kyle. Then tuned in to your podcast for the next three plus hours. Bless you, Darren. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Darren. 
I don't know what the ML context is. We got some questions now. Um, folks, if you like what you heard, you can hear stuff like this every uh, Monday and, uh, Tara and Aaron, we will have you guys both back on individually. I wanted to share the story cause I think they potentiate each other. As we talk about in the medical field, they both, uh, both of your stories make the other story stronger when people understand the background, but I'll get updates as we go. Um, and, uh, yeah, check us out later on this week with the uh, Kyle Serafin show for some weekly updates on Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening you all. And we do really appreciate all that support. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.